Chapter 11 of English Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Pyle. English Literature by Geraldine Hodgson. Chapter 11 Satires. The word satire derives its meaning from the idea of fullness, of having had enough. The step from enough to too much is often a short one. When it is short, bitterness easily ensues, and then, if the particular talent be there, satire. As a poetical form, it was probably invented by the Romans. The moods which offer it a congenial soil are mainly two. The first arises from a state of over-civilization, when the cream of life is so thick that it becomes repulsive. The second, perhaps on the whole the healthier of the two, springs from an overabundance of injuries and calamities. Such moods may be vented in mere satirical remarks, interpolations, and more cheerful compositions. This kind of thing occurs early in all literatures. But the poem which is a satire all the way, which deliberately aims at exposing and lashing folly, vice, or both, generally speaking belongs to the later stages of a nation's life. Healthy joy, ordinary vexation are spontaneous impulses, belonging alike to youth and every later age, whether of an individual or a race. But the calculated, thought-out, edged, cold thing we call satire is not naturally spontaneous in most of us. It is the issue of an overdose of something not in itself either pleasant or quite wholesome. So in early days we find satirical passages in our literature, but not satires proper. Such interspersed lines can be found in so mirthful a poet as Chaucer, but then Chaucer's nature had a grave, even a melancholy strand interwoven with the rest. In The Vision Appears Plowman, written by Langland in the 14th century. Satirical descriptions abound, sly attacks on every sort of humbug, hypocrite, and pompous strutter, whom peers saw in that fair field full of folk. He describes, and most bitingly too, great lubbers, loath to labor, who clothed themselves as friars, calling themselves hermits that they might exist lazily on other men's gifts, or faithless ecclesiastics who left the care of Christ's flock for comfortable posts at court, and so forth. But the poem is rather a picture of the very mixed life of the time, seen, it is true, by one whose troubles have exceeded his good fortune, than a true satire. On the other hand, the short poem, The Land of Cocaine, whose date is probably an early year of the 14th century, is a satire. It begins by contrasting heaven and cocaine, greatly to the latter's advantage. Far in the sea, west by Spain, is a land called Cocaine. There is no land beneath heaven's sway, like it in wealth and fine array. Though paradise be merry and bright, Cocaine is of fairer sight. What in paradise is there seen, but grass, flowers, branches green? Though there be joy and delight, there is no food saving fruit. There is no hall, chamber, nor bench. Not but water, man's thirst to quench. No men are there save only two. Elijah and Enoch also. They may go sad and sore, Whereof men there dwell no more. And cocaine is food and drink. 
without care, trouble, or swink. The food is choice, the drink is clear from morning hour until supper. I say forsooth, without a doubt, no land on earth is equal to it. No land is under heaven, I wis, of so manifold joy and bliss. There is no lack of food or cloth, there no man nor woman is wroth. There is no serpent, wolf, nor fox, horse nor nag, cow nor ox. There is no sheep, no swine, no goat, nor any filth, truly God it wot. There is no fly, flea, nor louse, in cloth, in barrel, bed, nor house. There is no thunder, sleet, nor hail, nor any vile worm, nor any snail. But all is mirth, joy, and glee, well as him who there may be. Then there follows a satirical picture of an abbey, sunk, as some had become, in utter luxury. There is a most fair abbey of white monks and gray. There are bowers, also halls, all of pasties are the walls, of flesh, or fish, or rich meat, the pleasantest that men can eat. Flowery cakes are the shingles all, on church, cloister, bower, and hall. The pinnacles are fat puddings, rich food for either princes or kings. Men can have thereof and their fill, all quite rightly, no thought of ill. All is common for young and old, for stout or stern, for meek and bold. And so the satire runs on for close on two hundred lines. As controversy about religion increased, so did the tendency to satire grow. That, indeed, is a mild term for some of the pamphlets which were written in the 17th century, some of Milton's outbursts even being rather extreme for a scholar. John Donne, Dean of St. Paul's, wrote some of the earliest English satires deliberately modeled on those of Latin authors. To us now, they have little living interest, but one or two quotations will serve to show his capacity in this particular vein of poetry. It is not, after all, as a satirist, but as a seer and lyrist, that men love done. In six lines he thus gibbets the people who match their courtesy to other men's wealth. O monstrous superstitious Puritan, of refined manners yet ceremonial man, that when thou meet'st one with inquiring eyes doth search and like a needy broker prize the silk and gold he wears, and to that rate so high or low dost raise thy formal hat. The following sarcasm is believed to be at the expense of Sir John Davies, some of whose poems Don had, apparently, misunderstood. But when he sells or changes land, he impairs his writings, and unwatched leaves out, says hares. As slyly as any commentator goes by, hard words or sense or in divinity, as converters in vouched texts leave out shrewd words which might against them clear the doubt, a stone with which he cheerfully contrives to kill several birds at once. Then in another satire he looses an exceedingly bitter shaft against James I, who on Elizabeth's death brought a crowd of needy followers to the English court, the king himself being indeed needy enough. And princes must fear favorites worse than foes, for still beyond revenge ambition grows. How since her death was sumpter horse that Scot hath rid, who at his coming up had not a sumpter dog. Dryden in the 17th century, Pope and Swift in the 18th century, are the great English satirists, men who in their varying degrees, 
showed the far-reaching, terrible force of satire. Dryden, great as his satiric gift was, retained some kindliness. Pope, with his neat, exquisite wit, his amazing power of touching a sore at its sorest, raised English satire to a level at which, in point and lucidity, even a Frenchman could scarcely beat him. Lastly came Swift, whose torrential wrath with men and things swept him into corrosive, cruel scorn. Political strife was so exceedingly bitter in the closing years of Charles II's reign that Dryden declared in his preface to his greatest satire, Absalom and Achitophel, that he who draws his pen for one party must expect to make enemies of the other. He, after going over to the royalist side, had been appointed poet laureate. According to the statement of Tonson, the publisher, it was at Charles's request that Dryden composed this damaging invective against the Earl of Shaftesbury, who, at the moment of its publication, was undergoing his second term of imprisonment in the Tower, and was awaiting his trial on a charge of high treason. In this preface, Dryden pleaded that he was trying to win over the more moderate section of public opinion, by rebating the satire, where justice would allow it, from carrying tedge. He added, I but laughed at some men's follies, when I could have declaimed against their vices. He closed with the plea that, the true end of satire is the amendment of vices by correction. The following lines are the most telling in Dryden's portrait of Shaftesbury. False Achitophel, as he labeled him. For close designs and crooked counsels fit, sagacious, bold, and turbulent of wit, restless, unfixed in principles and place, in power unpleased, impatient of disgrace, a fiery soul which, working out its way, fretted the pygmy body to decay, and o'er-informed the tenement of clay, a daring pilot in extremity, pleased with the danger when the waves went high, he sought the storms, but for a calm unfit, would steer too nigh the sands to boast his wit. Great wits are sure to madness near allied, and their partitions do their bounds divide. Else, why should he with wealth and honor blessed refuse his age the needful hours of rest, punish a body which he could not please, bankrupt of life, yet prodigal of ease, and all to leave what with his toil he won to that unfeathered, two-legged thing, a son. His portrait of George Villers, Duke of Buckingham, pilloried at Zimri, is more murderous still. A man so various that he seemed to be not one but all mankind's epitome, stiff in opinions, always in the wrong, was everything by starts but nothing long. But in the course of one revolving moon was chemist, fiddler, statesman, and buffoon. Railing and praising were his usual themes, and both, to show his judgment, in extremes. So over-violent or over-civil, that every man with him was god or devil. In squandering wealth was his peculiar art. Nothing went unrewarded but desert. Beggared by fools, whom still he found too late. He had his jest, and they had his estate. He laughed himself from court, then sought relief by forming parties, but could ne'er be chief. For spite of him, the weight of business fell on Absalom, and wise Achitophel. Thus wicked but in will of means bereft, he left not faction, but of that was left. Yet a little more scarifying still in his description of Slingsby Bethel, who had been sheriff of London, 
and was notorious for his mean ways. Shimi, whose youth did early promise bring of zeal to God and hatred to his king, did wisely from expensive sins refrain, and never broke the Sabbath but for gain. Nor ever was he known an oath to vent, or curse unless against the government, thus heaping wealth by the most ready way among the Jews, which was to cheat and pray. The city, to reward his pious hate against his master, chose him magistrate. His hand a vase of justice did uphold, his neck was loaded with a chain of gold. During his office treason was no crime, the sons of Belial had a glorious time. The literary men were hardly, if at all, less bitter in their enmities than the politicians. Shadwell and Dryden were, at one time, on friendly terms, but Shadwell partly, it is true, from political motives had attacked Dryden in an ill-tempered, scurrilous poem called The Medal of John Bays. Dryden replied with Mac Flecno. He selected as literary prince an inferior poet, recently dead, Flecno, and represented him as choosing in his dotage his successor, pondering which of all his sons was fit to reign and wage immortal war with wit. Flecknoe's choice fell upon Shadwell, Mac Flecknoe, whose inheritance was thus proclaimed. "'Tis resolved, for nature pleads that he should only rule, who most resembles me. Shadwell alone my perfect image bears, mature in dullness from his tender years, Shadwell alone of all my sons is he who stands confirmed in full stupidity. The rest is some faint meaning, make pretense, but Shadwell never deviates into sense. Some beams of wit on other souls may fall, strike through and make a lucid interval. But Shadwell's genuine night admits no ray, his rising fogs prevail upon the day. Alexander Pope was England's premier poet in those unblessed days when poetry had been degraded into a party weapon. He had written much which was free from political rancor and invective, but at last, in 1728, he yielded to the spirit of his age, and not less to his own ill temper. And in the Dunciad he piteously criticized and tore into shreds the wretched scribblers and poet-asters who surrounded him. At first Theobald, but finally Collie Sibber, was raised to the royal throne of the dunces. The picture of dullness upon her throne gave Pope the chance he desired to whip and sting at the minor poets, the ignorant scribblers, the money-grubbing nonentities whom he so heartily despised. In clouded majesty here dullness shone, four guardian virtues round support her throne. Fierce champion fortitude that knows no fears of hisses, blows, or want, or loss of ears. Calm temperance, whose blessings those partake with hunger, and who thirst for scribbling's sake. Prudence, whose glass presents the approaching jail. Poetic justice, with her lifted scale. Wherein nice balance, truth and gold she weighs, and solid pudding against empty praise. Here she beholds the chaos, dark and deep, where nameless somethings and their causes sleep till genial Jacob on a warm third day call forth each mass, a poem or a play. How hence, like spawn, scarce quick in embryo lie, how newborn nonsense is first taught to cry, maggots half-formed in rhyme exactly meet, and learn to crawl upon poetic feet. 
The Dunciad was written during Pope's most savage years. Yet once again, later, he used his pen mercilessly, not this time upon a worthless writer, but upon Addison himself. The following passage occurs in his prologue to the satires. In its polish, in its light and delicately poised language, in the rapier-like swiftness of its touch, it is an interesting contrast to the heavier, more ornate and resounding passage already quoted from the Dunciad. Peace to all such. Aye, but were there one whose fires true genius kindles, and fair fame inspires, blessed with each talent and each art to please, and born to write, converse, and live with ease, behold such a man, too fond to rule alone, bear like the Turk no brother near the throne, view him with scornful yet with jealous eyes, and hateful arts that caused himself to rise, damn with faint praise, assent with civil leer, and without sneering teach the rest to sneer. Willing to wound, and yet afraid to strike, just hint a fault, and hesitate dislike. Alike reserved to blame, or to commend a timorous foe, and a suspicious friend, dreading even fools by flatterers besieged, and so obliging that he ne'er obliged. Like Cato, give his little senate laws, and sit attentive to his own applause. While wits and templars every sentence raise, and wonder with a foolish face of praise, who but must laugh, if such a man there be? Who would not weep, if Atticus were he? This passage exhibits his personal hatred of Addison, who, after all, when these lines were published, had been dead for eight years. It is evident, too, that Pope had polished his blade long and carefully, for every word wounds and every stroke smarts. Bitter and even unjust as Pope's satire could be, it pales beside the savage fury of which, at times, Jonathan Swift was capable. The two men were utterly unlike. While both had genius, Pope's was a small, and Swift's a great nature. The words on Swift's tablet in St. Patrick's Cathedral, in the epitaph which he composed, Ubi seva indignatio, alterius cor lacera, Lacerar Niquit are the key to his life's tragedy. There was in him, as he knew it, a tendency to insanity, and, as a matter of fact, he died insane after years of intense suffering. Moreover, he was of those in whom the world's iniquity, its cruelty, perverse inequality, injustice, and greed rouse Sava Indignatio, furious indignation. And such was his peculiar temperament that literally, as he said, it tore his heart. He was a man of tempestuous emotions, and meeting again and again the varied sins and follies of mankind, his wrath not seldom burst all bounds. There are no other satires in our language so tremendous, so comprehensive, so lacerating, so sure of their mark. His essays on Ireland, the country in which he was born and died, though his family was of Yorkshire extraction, the Ireland which he hated and yet pitied for its manifold miseries, are among the cruelest satires. None of these is more terrible than his modest proposal, for preventing the children of poor people in Ireland from being a burden to their parents or country, and for making them beneficial to the public, 1729. There are some things which even in bitter jest are unbearable. 
Gulliver's travels are better known, and the fourth part of it was described by a critic as having lacerated and defiled the whole body of humanity. Yet those who realize the rare passages of perfectly clean and perfectly legitimate satire even to be found here, where the savagery is sometimes brutal, may think that such a criticism is extravagant. Swift, in this fourth book, represents himself as wrecked on a savage coast where noble beings in the form of horses, whinoms, rule the state, and keep in subjection a disgusting race whose outward form is approximately human, but whose thoughts and deeds are vile, a race called yahoos. The gray horse, or Winham, whom he met, took pity on him. And Swift, in the person of a wrecked sea captain, lived in this dignified creature's house and gradually learned the Wynnum language, and then learned of their life and ways. In conversation with the gray horse, Swift found an opportunity for some of his most searching satire on the people and manners of his own time. He described thus the Wynnum notion of truth and falsehood. He argued thus, that the use of speech was to make us understand one another, and to receive information of facts, now, if any one said the thing which was not, these ends were defeated, because I cannot properly be said to understand him, and I am so far from receiving information that he leaves me worse than in ignorance, for I am led to believe a thing black when it is white, and short when it is long. And these were all the notions he had concerning the faculty of lying, so perfectly well understood and so universally practiced among human creatures. Still more to this point was a satire on the philosophers of his day. The 18th century prided itself on its reasonableness, on its intellectual force, and on its superior wisdom. So Swift turned round on them all, and with irrefutable wit, set forth the Wynnum view of reason. As these noble Wynnums are endowed by nature with a general disposition to all virtues, and have no conceptions or ideas of what is evil in a rational creature, so their grand maxim is to cultivate reason, and to be wholly governed by it. Neither is reason among them a point problematical as with us, where men can argue with plausibility on both sides of the question, but strikes you with immediate conviction, as it must needs do, where it is not mingled, obscured, or discolored by passion and interest. I remember that it was with extreme difficulty that I could bring my master to understand the meaning of the word opinion, or how a point could be disputable. Because reason taught us to affirm or deny only where we are certain, and beyond our knowledge we cannot do either, so that controversies, wranglings, disputes, and positiveness in false or dubious propositions are evils unknown among the Whinnoms. In like manner, when I used to explain to him our several systems of natural philosophy, he would laugh, that a creature pretending to reason should value itself upon the knowledge of other people's conjectures, and in things where that knowledge, if it were certain, could be of no use. Wherein he agreed entirely with the sentiments of Socrates, as Plato delivers them, which I mention as the highest honor I can do to that prince of philosophers. I have often reflected what destruction such doctrine would make in the libraries of Europe, and how many paths of fame would be then shut up in the learned world. The bulk of Swift's writings are prose, but that he could be at once satirical and poignant in verse is shown by the lines which he wrote in 1731 to commemorate his supposed death. 
He really died fourteen years later. His estimate of his fellow creatures may be gathered from the following passages. From Dublin soon to London spread, tis told to court the dean is dead. And Lady Suffolk, in the spleen, runs laughing up to tell the queen. The queen, so gracious, mild, and good, cries, Is he gone? Tis time he should. Here shift the scene to represent how those I love my death lament. Poor Pope would grieve a month, and gay a week, and Arbuthnot a day. St. John himself would scarce forbear to bite his pen and drop a tear. The rest will give a shrug and cry, I'm sorry, but we all must die. My female friends, whose tender hearts have better learned to act their parts, receive the news in doleful dumps. The dean is dead. Pray what are trumps? Then, Lord, have mercy on his soul. Ladies, I'll venture for the vole. Six deans, they say, must bear the pall. I wish I knew what king to call. Madam, your husband will attend the funeral of so good a friend. No, madam, tis a shocking sight that he's engaged tomorrow night. My lady club will take it ill if he should fail her at quadrille. He loved the dean, I lend a heart, but dearest friends, they say, must part. His time has come, he ran his race, we hope he's in a better place. He gave the little wealth he had to build a house for fools and mad, and showed by one satiric touch. No nation wanted it so much. That kingdom he had left his debtor, I wish it soon may have a better. Satire is the delight, probably, of a minority, and theirs only in certain moods. Part of one political satire of our own day, more light-hearted, more humane, and for that reason perhaps more acceptable, may well close this chapter, Mr. Joseph Campbell's very delightful Orangeman. A ginger-faced man with a walrus moustache, his eyes like a soul of the color of ash, when the fire goes out of it, breaking to flame, of a sulphurous glare at the touch of the name. William, for Billy of Orange, he knows, saved him and his seed from the devil's own woes. His faith, 1690, his love none, his hope that hell may one day get the soul of the Pope. Not that the esteet in him is dumb, there's the flap of his banner, the tap of his drum. Straussian discords for peace and revolt, the crash of the paver, the crack of the bolt. A monster, not quite, as you guess from my song, but clay marred in the mixing, God's image gone wrong. End of chapter 11, Satires.